Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, and we'll be reading verses 12 to 14 today. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. It says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today, Lord, knowing that you are the one who has granted us all things, Lord, pertaining to life and godliness. That salvation is a gift that you have given. Lord, it comes down out of heaven from you. And that, Lord, you are the one who supplies all that is necessary for our salvation. Lord, it is necessary for us to persevere and to endure in the faith. So, Father, what you require, we pray that you would give to us. Lord, by your gracious will and through your strength. Lord, may you use your word today. Lord, to stir us up, Lord, to encourage us, Lord, to hold fast our faith, and Lord, to hold fast our confidence firm until the end. And Lord, we pray that your word today would be used to soften our hearts, Lord, so that none of us would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So, Father, use your people today, and may we, day after day, encourage one another, Lord, building each other up in our faith, so that none of us, Lord, would fail to obtain what it is that we are seeking, but rather we might all, Lord, be raised up to eternal life with you. And it is in Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen. Well, in this passage, the apostle is exhorting us to persevere in the faith. And this exhortation to endurance began all the way back in verse 6, where it says that we are God's house. If we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end, It is not enough that we begin the Christian life. It is not enough that we make some profession of faith in Christ. But this profession must be tested and proven over the course of our lives. This is why God places trials, tests, tribulations, various things in front of us in order to prove the reality of our faith. And one of those things that proves that our faith is good faith is endurance in the things of God. This is a manifestation that we have truly become partakers of Christ. Here in this passage, the apostle is using the wilderness generation as an example of those who made a profession, who had many religious and spiritual experiences, who saw the many mighty wonders of God. They were led by the prophet Moses, yet with most of them, God was not pleased. They hardened their hearts against the voice of the Lord, and they perished in the wilderness as a public display of God's displeasure with them. God swore in his wrath that they would not enter into his rest, neither the rest on earth in the land of Canaan, nor the eternal rest of God in heaven that was symbolized by the land of Canaan. And because of what happened to them, he's warning us to take care, to be watchful, to be vigilant over our own souls and over the souls of our brothers so that there would not be found in any one of us an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. They did not take care. They did not persevere. They manifested an evil, unbelieving heart by continually going astray from the Lord. And so he's telling us we better watch out that we don't have such a heart in us, an evil, unbelieving heart an unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. We cannot forsake Jesus Christ. We must cling fast to him. We cannot abandon Christ and give up our profession of faith in him. For to forsake Christ is to fall away from the living God. It is to turn our backs on the only lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. And if we fall away from the living God then what happened to the wilderness generation will happen to us. God will swear in his wrath that we also will not enter into his rest. The seed that fell among the rocks. This is the one who heard the word, 
received it with joy, but when persecution arose because of the word, that person fell away. He did not produce enduring fruit. So we must hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. This is the subject that he is treating here in this passage. Now in verses 13 and 14, he will provide a great help for keeping us from falling away from the living God and reinforce to us the necessity of holding fast firm until the end. Let's begin there in verse 13. Verse 13 says, But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What will keep us from falling away? What is provided as a help, as a remedy in our wilderness wanderings? And here it is, the body of Christ. The mutual care that we are to have one for another. He says we are to encourage one another day after day. We are one body in Christ. We are individual members, but members of one body. And since we belong one to another, then we are to have the same care for our brothers as we have for ourselves. Is it good for me to fall away from the living God? Do I want to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? Do I want God to swear concerning me in his wrath that I will not enter into his rest? Of course, none of us want this to be true of us. Well, if I don't want this to be true of me, then I must take care of my own soul. I must watch and pray. I must tend to my salvation. But I am to love my neighbor as myself. I am to do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. If I don't want these things to be true of me, then why would I want any of them to be true of any of you? If I don't want it to come pass upon my life, then I should not want it to come to pass upon you either. And vice versa, you should not want that for me. We are to love one another by caring for one another. And one of the ways established by God to keep us in the faith, to keep us holding fast, holding firm, clinging to Christ for our endurance in the faith is the mutual love, care, the edification that takes place within the body of Christ. Each member looking not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of his brothers the spiritual care of those that he is connected to in the body of Christ. This is why those who forsake, those who are not a part of the body of Christ, it is to their own detriment. Because how will they be encouraged in the faith if they're not with other people in the faith? We need one another. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 to 14. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 14. says, for even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greek, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. Then also 25 and 26. So that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Here, now, the context of 1 Corinthians 12 is the use of spiritual gifts within the body of Christ, but the principle is the same. We are one body. Yes, we are individual members. We have different gifts. We have different struggles, different things that we are going through, but we are all members of the same body. And if one member suffers, the whole body suffers. If one person falls away, then it affects the whole congregation, right? It's not good for anybody. We are to care for one another because we belong one to another. We are to encourage each other, exhorting each other to continue in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God has designed our spiritual life in this way so that we would not be Lone Ranger Christians trying to do it on our own, but rather we are to depend upon, rely upon one another, bearing each other's burdens and so fulfilling the law of Christ. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, Ecclesiastes 4, verses 9 to 12. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 to 12. It says, two are better than one. 
because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. Two are better than one. Right? The body is necessary. We need to help one another. Do we not have an adversary seeking to overpower us? Well, standing by ourselves, certainly he can be successful. But what if we have one standing with us? Not only speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, standing with us spiritually, but also our brothers helping us, helping us fight against sin, helping us overcome the deceitfulness of sin. We need one another in this capacity. Also, in Acts chapter 11, we have an example of one such brother, one such companion in Barnabas. Acts eleven twenty two to 24. Acts chapter 11, verse 22. says, The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. There it says of Barnabas that he was encouraging them to remain true to the Lord. Well, is that not the same as our passage? Encouraging one another to remain faithful to the Lord. That's what he's talking about here. The very thing that Barnabas was exhorting the people in Antioch to do, to remain true of the Lord. So our apostle is also exalting us, or he's encouraging us to the same thing, to be true to the Lord, to hold fast our confidence firm to the end. So we are to encourage one another. Now next, notice both the frequency and the season where we are to perform this act of love. The frequency is day after day. Day after day, meaning all the time, at all times, continually, from conversion until death, we are to continually, nonstop, exhorting one another, encouraging one another to remain true to the Lord. There is no Christian, no one in this life who ever arrives to a level of maturity where he does not need to be exhorted to remain true to the Lord. We will never come to a point in our Christian life on this earth where we arrive at this situation where we no longer need to be encouraged to be faithful to the Lord. I can never come to any of you and say, you don't need to encourage me anymore because I've arrived. I've got it all figured out. There's no way that I will ever fall away from the Lord. I will never forsake Christ. Wasn't there one who did that once? He said, if all others abandon you, I will never forsake you. And then what happened to him only a few hours later? He denied Christ three times. So long as the devil is roaming to and fro, so long as the world exists to seduce us, so long as we have the flesh remaining active within us, we need to be encouraged to steadfastness, to a resolute heart, to persevere in the faith, to remain true to the Lord. And when will these enemies of ours no longer torment us? Either when we die or when Christ returns, neither of which are true of our present situation. We're not dead, right? We're all alive and here today, and Christ has not returned yet. We're still waiting for him to come. So because those two things have not happened, then what do we need to do for one another? Whether young or old, we need to be encouraging one another to remain faithful and true to the Lord. You encouraging me, and I should be encouraging you. Did not David the prophet commit great sin against the Lord? Wasn't it true of Peter the Apostle, as we referenced, that he denied Christ three times? Did not Solomon, that great king, turn away from the Lord because of his foreign wives? If David can fall, if Peter can deny Christ, if Solomon's heart can turn away from the Lord, then who am I? Right? And who are you? Right? If anyone thinks he stands, he better take heed lest he fall. If they can fall into sin, then so can I. If they can be hardened, then so can I. Now again, their hardening 
was not permanent. They were not permanent apostates like Judas Iscariot who went to hell. But they all had a severe lapse. A severe lapse of faith and a momentary hardening by the deceitfulness of sin. If it can happen to them, it can happen to you and me. So we must be aware of our own weaknesses, our own frailties, our own proclivity to commit sin. I am not above any of these sins, but God has provided a help, a source of strength to keep me from stumbling. And here that source is encouraging one another day by day. We are to do this day by day. So the frequency is all the time. We should be doing this constantly when we are together, when we are with one another, encouraging each other in the faith. Then also the season. When are we to perform this act of love for one another? Well, notice what he says. As long as it is still called today. The today there is in quotes. And that goes back to chapter 3, verse 7. Chapter 3, verse 7 says, therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, today being the day of salvation, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day when we are to make use of these things. This is when we need to be encouraging one one another during the time of our salvation. From the moment of our conversion, Until the moment of our death, we are to take advantage of the many kindnesses of God. We are to apply ourselves to the grace of God and press on until we reach the kingdom of God. None of us have arrived to the end of our salvation. We are all pressing on toward that goal. And so while we are in this period that is called today, we are to encourage one another, this being the time of our sojourning the time of our testing in the wilderness. The wilderness generation, they did not encourage one another while it was still called today. Instead, what did they do? They discouraged one another. They encouraged one another to commit mutiny against God. They grumbled and complained about God's providential dealings with them. And isn't it true that when you get some people together and they all start griping and complaining, it just goes and it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. They began to maximize and to look and to carp upon God over and over again. Numbers 14, 1 to 10. Numbers 14, verses 1 to 10. We'll see here the contrast between the 10 worthless spies and the two good ones. The difference between the two. Numbers 14, verse 1. says, Then all the congregation lift up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we have died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel. Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, of those who had spied out the land toward their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. And the Lord is pleased with us. Then he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. There Joshua and Caleb... They are encouraging them. They're exhorting them. The people are faltering. They're not stable in their faith. They're encouraging them to be faithful to the Lord. They're trying to build them up in the faith to believe in the promises of God. But they would not listen to them. They would not listen to their voices. 
But they wanted to put Joshua and Caleb to death with Moses and Aaron. Stone all of them, appoint a leader to take us back to Egypt. Joshua and Caleb are good examples of what it means to encourage one another. Barnabas, also that we read earlier, is a good example of what it means to stir one another up to love and good deeds. This is what we need to be doing for one another, especially during times of trial and temptation. When people are going through the valley, when they're going through hardships, when they're going through a time of testing, they need to be encouraged to remain true to the Lord, to not give up, but to press on to the kingdom of God. Now, why is this so important? Well, notice what he says next. So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is crouching at the door. Sin's desire is for us, but we must master it. That's what it says in Genesis chapter 4. And we cannot master sin by our own strength. Primarily, we need the strength of God. It takes the mighty power of God to overcome our sin. But secondarily, one of the means established by God for us to have victory over sin, to master sin so that it does not dominate our lives, is the encouragement of one another. The brothers encouraging us to remain true to the Lord, to not be consumed, to not be mastered by the deceitfulness of sin. This is why we are to encourage one another day after day, so long as it is still called today, so that none of you would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, hardened against the word of God, hardened against the voice of the Lord. Isn't that what we just read in Numbers chapter 14, 1 to 10? Their heart was hardened against the promises of God. God's promises was for their good, for their blessing, that he was going to bring them and give them this good land, that he would slay all of their enemies. But they did not believe the promises of God. Their heart was hardened to these things by the deceitfulness of sin. Again, this goes back to Hebrews 3, 7 to 8. Hebrews 3, 7 to 8. The, the deceitfulness of sin that hardens the heart. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. Sin seeks to harden our hearts against the word of God, and it does so by way of deceit. Sin gains a foothold in our lives Always through deception. Sin is by its very nature a deception over us. The first sin that entered into the world in Genesis chapter 3, did it not come by way of deception? It says in Genesis 3.13, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The serpent deceived Adam and Eve. Sin deceived Adam and Eve so that their hearts were hardened to the word of God. The voice that God had spoken to them concerning his law, his punishments, his blessings, but in particular regarding this tree that was there, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God had spoken to them, given to them His Word. They heard His voice concerning what God expected of them in relationship to that tree. But sin, through its deception, hardened their heart to that Word of God so that they did not obey it, but rather they became transgressors. Instead of a tender heart to the Word of God, they had a hard heart because of deception, an evil, unbelieving heart and what resulted in that evil, unbelieving heart? Did they not fall away from the living God? They fell into sin because they did not believe God's promises either for blessing or his promises for curses. They didn't believe any of these because of the deception of sin. The same thing happened with the wilderness generation. When the spies returned, the ten gave a bad report. The report they gave contradicted the word of God, contradicted the voice of God, the promises of God that had been declared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and had been clearly manifested to them in God's deliverance from the land of Egypt. 
these promises that were being taught to them by the prophet Moses. But those spies did not encourage the people to believe those promises of God, but rather they discouraged them by telling them lies. They reported that it would be impossible for Israel to triumph over the inhabitants of the land, that we will all die in there, that our children and our wives will become prey to those people, that they will be taken by them, that we will surely fail. It's a suicide mission. God has brought us out of Egypt. We thought he brought us to the wilderness to kill us, but now we really know. We really know how sinister God is. He brought us all of this way, pretending to be for us, only so he could take us into this land and then let us be destroyed by the Canaanites. That's really what God is up to. That's what these ten spies are telling the people, putting these lies in their mind so that the people do not believe the promises of God. And because the people already had an evil, unbelieving heart, they did not believe in the power of God nor his faithfulness to fulfill his promises to them. And yes, it is true. The people of the land of Canaan were a mighty people. And certainly Israel, depending on their own strength, would be devoured by them. But were they fighting on their own? Were they going on their own strength? Were they entering into that land by themselves? But had God not promised to go before them and to defeat their enemies on their behalf? But they did not believe in God's presence. They did not believe in God's power. They did not believe in his goodness or his faithfulness. And all of this came upon them because of the deceitfulness of sin. Sin wants us to believe lies about God so that we do not trust in him, so that we have evil suspicion about God, that we don't believe that God is for us, that he is with us, that God is good and has our best interest in mind, that he is powerful and able to deliver us. And these temptations to doubt God, to question God, to have this evil suspicion towards God, these things are uh, flamed into a fire especially during times of tribulation. When our experiences, when this ordeal that we are going through makes it appear to us that God has forsaken us. The evil, unbelieving heart, the one hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, when he goes through trials and tribulations, he says, well, God has abandoned me, so why should I be faithful to him? If God doesn't love me, then why would I love him? If God is not faithful to me, then why should I serve him? Right? What benefit is there in serving the Lord? What good am I getting it in this life when I'm stuck in poverty, when I have disease, when I receive this diagnosis? Right? Obviously, God doesn't love me. If he loved me, then I wouldn't have cancer. If he loved me, then my loved one wouldn't have died. If God loved me and cared for me, then I wouldn't have lost my job. So God doesn't love me, therefore why should I love him? That is what the evil, unbelieving heart does, especially during times of trial, temptation, and difficulty. Isn't that the seed that fell among the rocks? When tribulation rises because of the word, it falls away. It is unfruitful because they're only serving God for some benefit they get out of it in this life. And when their life becomes more difficult because of their faith in Christ, then they fall away. They walk away because it's not what they signed up for. They signed up for an easy life, a prosperous life, a God who only blesses them, but a God who does not test them and try them and discipline his own. Right? This is what people want. They want a sugar daddy. They want God to be their sugar daddy, not their father. The father disciplines his son. The, you know, the sugar daddy just gives you whatever you want. That's what people want God to be, a genie, a genie, there to answer every wish that they have. An unbeliever, that's how they think, but not a true believer. A true believer is not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, but rather when he goes through the time of trying, temptation, and trial, where does he go? He goes to the word of God, and he reads in God's word, God's assurances of his blessing, of his favor, of his fatherly kindness toward him. 
And even though what is happening to him may be confusing to him, it's difficult for him, he doesn't understand what's going on, but he cast himself upon the Lord. He cast his cares and his burdens upon God, and he trusts that God knows what is best for him, and that God knows how to safely deliver him from every evil thing. He lives not by sight, he lives by his faith. Isn't that what Jesus did? He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Even when it was obvious to him that he was going to be put to death, he continued to trust and commit his soul unto the Lord. And this is what we have to do as well. James chapter 5. James chapter 5. That's why the testing is for our good. It proves what kind of a heart we have for our own benefit. It's for our benefit that God does this. It gives us hope, and hope does not put us to shame, but rather it gives us even greater encouragement in the things of God. James 5, verse 10. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job, and you have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Here, he uses the prophets and then specifically one prophet, that being Job. Job was not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, but he endured through the trial. He did not give up. Yes, he had some sin in him, and God exposed that sin, and God used it to sanctify him. But during that ordeal, did Job curse God and die? Did Job turn away from the Lord? No, he said such. He says that he wasn't going to do so. Should we receive good from the Lord and not evil? He says the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all of this, Job did not sin in terms of turning away from the Lord. He did not apostatize from the faith because he was going through such a severe trial and difficulty. Though in his case, his wife and his friends were miserable comforters. They weren't encouraging him the way that they should. And we should not be like them, but rather we should be encouraging one another day by day while it is still called today. Verse 14, Hebrews 3, 14 says, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Now here it is very important that we understand the sequence of events. What he's saying and what he is not saying. He is not saying that our holding fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end is what makes us become a partaker of Christ. It is not our effort. It is not our faith. It is not our perseverance. It is not our good works that cause us to be partakers of Christ. Rather, it is our partaking of Christ that results in holding fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Right? In terms of sequence, in terms of cause and effect, being a partaker of Christ is the root, and holding fast is the fruit. The root and the fruit. The fruit that results from being a partaker of Christ, right? That's why he says it in the passive sense, in the past tense. We have become partakers of Christ. This is what is true of us, and this truth will be manifested in us by our holding fast to Christ. Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7, verses 15 to 20. there is a correlation, a one-to-one correlation between the root and the tree, or the root and the branches. Matthew 7, 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles are they. So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. 
you will know them by their fruits. You will be able to distinguish between a good tree and a bad tree by the fruit produced in the tree. The fruit does not make the tree good or bad. It is the root that determines the nature of the tree. The fruit provides the evidence of what is true of the root. Right, The heart of every man is either good or bad. We come to know the condition of the heart by the fruit produced in the life of the person. In order for the fruit to be good, something must happen to the tree. Something must happen to the root. Something, a prior experience, must happen in that person in order for this good fruit to come forth from their life. And this is because in our natural state, we are all bad trees. By nature, we are all bad. We are children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. Or as it says in Romans chapter 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. No one is righteous, it says in Romans chapter 3. We all have an evil, unbelieving heart by nature. The root is corrupted by sin. Therefore, men left to themselves will only produce evil fruit. Rotten, grotesque, wild, evil fruit. And what is it that changes a man? What is it that makes a man who is a bad tree become a good tree? A man with an evil, unbelieving heart become a man with a good heart, a heart of faith. He must be a partaker of Christ. Christ is the only one who can change us. We must be grafted into Christ. This is the strength. This is the source that changes a man from being a rotten tree, from being a bad tree, an evil tree, to being a good tree. All of the grace is found in Jesus Christ. Every spiritual good, every spiritual blessing in heavenly places is found in Jesus Christ alone. He is the only source by which the grace of God can come to us. And we receive the grace of God resulting in salvation when we are connected to Jesus Christ. When we are baptized into Christ Jesus. When we are born again by the Spirit of Christ. When we are united to Christ. This is the key to everything. Those who are united to Christ, who have become partakers of Jesus Christ, they will receive grace upon grace. The grace of God found in Christ. It will flow from Christ to them. Isn't that the way it works with the tree? All of the nourishment is found in the root. The root is the one that provides the life, the nourishment there for the tree. Well, if the root is Christ... And if we are connected to Christ, if the tree is growing up out of Christ, then what will be true of that tree? The life of Christ will be manifested in that person's life, in that tree, and the fruit that will come forth in that tree will resemble the very life of Christ. Every single aspect of our salvation, from beginning to end, it is a gift given to us by God. It is a grace given to us by God and we receive it all through Jesus Christ. Amen. Our justification, our sanctification, our glorification, our righteousness, our faith, our repentance, our love for God, our love for our neighbor, our obedience to God. And here, our endurance or our perseverance in the faith, our holding fast to Christ is a grace that God produces in us and we receive it on the basis of Jesus Christ. Christ. Every grace we need for the Christian life from start to finish. And one of those graces is the gift of perseverance, the gift of endurance. It all comes to us because we have been united to Jesus Christ. Amen. We have become partakers of Christ so that his life, his grace, his mercy, his power, his strength, all of it flows into us because we are united to him by faith. Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. Notice there in verses 16 to 18. Romans 11, verse 16. 
says, if the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. Who is the root of the tree, of the household of God, the tree of God? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the root. And if the root is holy, the branches are going to be holy as well. Right? This is the way it works. And we were wild olive trees. We were living in sin. We were idolaters in our former state. At some point in our life, if you trace it back long enough, our ancestors were worshiping idols. They were like a wild olive tree. They did not have access. They did not know the things of God. But then, these wild olive trees have been grafted in. Grafted into the root. So that they're not wild anymore. But because the root is holy, what becomes true of them? What becomes true of us when we are grafted into Christ? Well, what is true of Him will become true of us. If the dough is holy, so is the lump. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If a person is a partaker of Christ, then the holiness of Christ will be found in him. And it is impossible that someone would be a true partaker of Christ and there not be the holiness of Christ in him. That the grace of Christ would not be seen in his life. It is impossible that someone is a true partaker of Christ and the gift, the grace of perseverance, that fruit will not be produced in their life. The nature of the root will flow into the branches. If the root is holy, then the branches will be holy as well. And did not Christ persevere? Did he not endure? He endured, he pressed on through many tribulations. So what will be true of his branches? They will do the same as well. Now, in terms of men, if we look at all men as branches, we can separate people into three categories. Some men are dead branches connected to a dead root or a dead branch laying out in the middle of the forest over there. This would be adherence to false religions, false ideologies. Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, pagans, atheists, agnostics. They have no connection to Christ. They are dead in their sins. They are connected to dead idols. They are completely worthless and they will never produce any good fruit to God. They do not profess to be Christians. They have no association with the things of God or the Christian church. Dead branches, no fruit, because they are not partakers of Christ. That's in Romans 11, he's talking about wild olive trees. A wild olive tree is one out in the middle of the wilderness, out there worshiping idols, doing nothing good at all. But then there are those within the Christian religion. Those who have some association with the things of God. Those who profess to be Christians, who profess to know the living God, who claim to believe in Christ. But not all who profess Christ are actually living branches. Some of those who have an association with Christ and the things of God are actually dead branches. They have attached themselves in some outward way to Christ, to the church, to the things of God, They've been baptized, they may take communion, they may show up every once in a while, they may be members of the church. They have some association to the things of God. Their name is not Muhammad, but rather it's John or Mark or Matthew. They have a Christian name, they have a Christian heritage in this kind of way. And in a sense, they are hanging on to the tree. They've been grafted in a sense into the tree, but they have not become partakers of the life giving root. Just like you might go out into the forest and there's a tree with a dead branch upon it. Everything else has life. All the other limbs have leaves on it, have fruit on it. But what about that dead limb? Is it producing anything? No, it's dead because it's no longer connected to the root. It's no longer connected to the vine and therefore it does not have any life within it. It is a dead branch that is only fit to be cut off of that tree 
and then thrown into the fire. That's Romans chapter 11, what he's talking about in relationship to the Jewish nation, to the people of Israel. They were dead branches. They were connected in a sense to the things of God, but there was no life in them. They're the barren fig tree that is only fit to be cursed and cut down and thrown into the fire. And this remains true today, even in Christian churches, even in Christian denominations. Among the Christian world, there are people that are dead branches, but who have some association to the things of God. They may even be called a Christian, and they are connected in a sense, but there is no real fruit in them. There is no life, no leaves, nothing good. An example would be the wilderness generation. An example would be the ten spies. An example would be Judas Iscariot. An example would be Demas, in love with this present world, has forsaken me. This is the seed that fell among the rocks and the seed that fell among the thorns. Profession of faith, a temporary, momentary association with the things of God, but no endurance. They do not hold fast firm until the end. But all of those who are connected to Christ, who are true partakers of Christ, every single one of them will endure until the end. And because they do not produce this fruit of endurance, it proves that they are not partakers of Christ. And then there is the third group, and that is the living branches. Those who are true living branches, who are truly connected to the tree and who produce good fruit, who have life in them. There's leaves on them. There is fruit that comes forth in their life. They prove, they manifest, they evidence throughout the course of their life that they truly have become partakers of Christ. They are not superficially connected to Christ, but have really and truly been united to Him. Because how can the fruits of the Spirit come about in a person's life without the Spirit of God dwelling within them? And yet these things are evident in their life. They're manifested in them over and over again. And one of those fruits produced in them by the Spirit of God, is the good fruit of perseverance. It is produced on this branch. They face trials and tribulations. They face their testings, and they press on. They hold fast, firm till the end. This would be like Joshua and Caleb. Didn't Joshua and Caleb face the same tribulation as the other ten spies? Didn't they have the same set of circumstances before them as the rest of the congregation? And yet they're exact opposite of them. The rest of them are producing evil, rotten fruit, but not Joshua and Caleb. In the midst of that trial, what kind of fruit are they producing? Good fruit. Their faith is being manifested over and over again. Their confidence in the Lord and in the things of God. This would also be true of righteous Job. He faced a severe trial. And in that trial, did he give up? Did he curse God and die? No, He said, no, there's no way I'll do that. And he said many wonderful things during the midst of his trials and temptation. This would be true of the 11 disciples in contrast to Judas. Though they did have a momentary shaking of their faith, they were, as Peter was, sifted as wheat, and he denied Christ three times, but he also came back. He repented of his sin, and then they proved themselves to be faithful over the course of their life. This is the seed that fell in the good soil. The fruit of endurance manifested that they were indeed partakers of Christ. For no one can do this on their own strength. There is no one, none of us, can safely reach the heavenly kingdom by our own power, our own wisdom, our own cunning, our own strength. What is the only way that we can endure? What is the only way that we can overcome this present world? Only by the power of God. And the power of God comes to us through Jesus Christ. Because we have been vitally connected to him. Through our union with Christ, all of the power of God in him flows to us so that we are able, through many tribulations, to enter into the kingdom of God. This is the grace that God produces in us. 2 Timothy 4. 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 to 8. 2 Timothy 4, 
verses 6 to 8 says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. There, this is at the end of his life, and the apostle is saying, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Now, are those true statements about him? Absolutely, they're true. This is what was true of his life. He did not turn away. He did not abandon Christ. He pressed on, and he faced many difficulties. Even when he's writing this, he's been imprisoned for his faith. But how was he able to do this? He's saying it because it is true of him. But how did it become true of him? Well, that's verses 16 to 18. 4, 16. At my first offense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. There, it should be pointed out, he needed people there to support him. His trial was made more difficult and severe because no one was there to support him. Now, God supported him, but it would have been better for the brothers to be there with him as well to encourage him. And that's what he says in verse 17. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished, and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. How was he able to do it? Because the Lord will strengthen me. And the Lord is the one who will safely bring me into his heavenly kingdom. Through the very life of Christ. Because he is a partaker of Christ. And this also goes back to what we read in Hebrews chapter 2. We remember in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14. Hebrews 2 14 says, Therefore... Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. We have flesh and blood, so he partook of the same. He partook of our nature, and now as a result of him partaking of our nature, what are we able to do? We are able to partake of him. We are able to become members of his body. He being the living head. Him being the life-giving root that nourishes us by communicating every spiritual blessing and every good gift of God, every grace necessary for our salvation. He communicates these things to us by his spirit who dwells within us. He has sent his spirit within us. Now, lastly here, we must ask, If this is a grace, if it is a gift that God grants to his children, why does the apostle state this as a condition? A condition that is placed before us that we must hold fast firm until the end. If only God can do this in us, then why is he saying it? It's our responsibility. Why is he putting it as a condition that we must meet? If the endurance comes from union with Christ, then either we have it or we don't have it. Either we are partakers or we're not partakers. If we are partakers, we will endure. If we're not partakers, then we will fall away. But here he states it, not as a statement of fact, but as a condition that must be true of us, that we must pursue a condition that we must meet. This is the same as we read in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6. Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Again, if perseverance is a gift, then it must be granted to us by God. Then why does the apostle expect the church to strive for it as a condition that we must meet, as if it depends upon them? And the answer is that God... He grants his gifts to us through the use of means. And the primary cause of our perseverance is always the will of God. God has ordained the salvation of the elect from before the foundation of the earth. 
And based upon that will, God will grant everything necessary for their salvation so that every single one of his people, not one of them will be lost, but they will all enter into the kingdom of God. But God grants these gifts of salvation to us through various means, through secondary causes. The primary cause is always God. The secondary causes are the things that God uses to grant to us his many gracious gifts. The grace of perseverance is granted to us in this way. God works the grace in us and through us, but he does not work it in us apart from us. God uses the promises of eternal rewards. He uses the threats of eternal punishment. He uses the good example of the faithful, the bad example of the wicked, the encouragement of the saints, prayer, the word of God, and here the conditional nature of the promises. He uses these as the means to motivate us to love and good deeds, to grant to us the very things that we need. Not that God's promises are conditioned on anything in us, but the unconditional promises of God toward his people. While we are still in the time of our testing, they are attached with these conditions in order to cause us to persevere. All of these are the means used by God to produce the grace of endurance in his people. The nominal, superficial Christian, they do not pay attention to these conditions. They have blind confidence, and they do not make use of the conditions for their own salvation. The true, sincere Christian, he pays close attention. He sees the condition attached to the promise of God, and he makes use of them. He makes improvement on them. He's careful to observe what God has commanded. In this case, he sees that only those who hold fast to Christ will enter into the kingdom of God. And so what does he do? He holds on fast to Christ. Yeah, the condition is used by God to produce endurance and steadfastness in him. And this is the way it is in many aspects of life. Like our eating every day, our daily bread. Does God provide food for us? Does God feed us? Or do we feed ourselves? Well, we are taught to pray to give us this day our daily bread. To depend upon the Lord to supply our daily needs for only God can feed us. But we are also taught that if a man will not work, neither shall he eat. Work is the means used by God commonly, day in and day out, to feed us. The primary one who feeds us is God, but he uses the means of work to bring this about daily, to give this gift in our life. And here, in that case, the prospect of starvation is used to motivate men to work so that they can eat by the grace of God. And it is the same way in our salvation as well, in terms of our perseverance. The prospect of eternal damnation, the prospect of eternal life, is used by God as a motivator to get us to press on, to produce this within us by His Holy Spirit. An example of this would be Acts 27. Acts 27, 21 to 32. This is when the Apostle Paul was on the ship in the middle of the ocean. And they were in the middle of that storm. Acts 27, 21. It says, When they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice and not have set sail for Crete and incurred this damage and loss. Yet now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. For this very night an angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all of those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on a certain island. But when the fourteenth night came, as we were being driven about in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors began to surmise that we were approaching some land. 
They took surroundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. And a little farther on, they took another sounding and found it to be 15 fathoms. Fearing that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak. But as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship and had let down the ship's boat into the sea on the pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, Unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. Here, God had granted the lives of these men to the Apostle Paul. But what was also necessary? They couldn't abandon the ship. If they did so, they could not be saved. It was the condition. It was the means used by God to grant to them the lives that he had promised to give to the Apostle Paul. And so it is with us. God has granted to us our very lives. God has granted salvation to us. But unless we remain faithful to Christ, we cannot be saved. We must cling and hold fast to Christ firm until the end. In the prospect of eternal reward, the prospect of eternal punishment, God uses these things as motivations for his children to grant to them his endurance. As it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Philippians 2, 12 to 13. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today, Lord, thanking you for, Lord, the many kindnesses that you have shown, Lord, to each and every one of us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we see that apart from Christ, we have absolutely nothing. We would be completely dead in our sins, worthless, useless for anything good. Evil trees, Lord, producing nothing but evil fruit. But Lord, in Christ, we who were dead in our sins, Lord, we who were evil, Lord, can be made alive. Lord, we can be made into good trees, into righteous trees. Lord, oaks of righteousness that produce many good fruits for God. Lord, we confess that all of this comes from, from Him. He is the life-giving root. He is the one who is building up the household of faith. Lord, every good thing that has ever been produced within us, from our faith to our repentance, our obedience to you, Lord, whatever fruits of the Spirit have been manifested in us, Lord, whatever righteousness we have attained in this life, Lord, whatever perseverance and overcoming of trials and temptations, Lord, whatever there has been in us that is good and pleasing in your sight, Lord, we confess that all of it has come from Jesus Christ. It only comes from him. And so, Lord, we boast in him today. Lord, not in our own strength. And, Lord, not in anything that we have done. Because, Lord, we know that there is nothing that we have that we have not received from him. So, Father, we thank you for giving, Lord, such a, a foundation, Lord, to your household. Lord, for giving such a, a root and, Lord, a vine to this tree that you are building up as our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In him is all life. All of your grace and mercy is found in him. And Lord, we thank you that you have united us to him by faith, that you have caused us, Lord, to become a partaker of Christ. Lord, this reality, we ask that it would be manifested and displayed, Lord, in many ways throughout the course of our life. Lord, that his life would be seen in us. The root is holy, and so, Father, we pray that the branches would be holy as well. And that you would produce in us, Lord, the very life of Christ. That it would be seen, Lord, in greater and greater ways throughout the course of our time on this earth. Lord, we pray specifically that you would grant to us this good fruit of perseverance. Knowing that... Without endurance, we cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And so, Father, we pray that you would grant it to us and that you would cause us, Lord, through many tribulations to enter into the kingdom of Christ. 
Lord, whenever we go through trials and tribulations, Lord, keep us from having an evil, unbelieving heart. We pray, Father, that you would keep us from being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Lord, that we would not believe the lies of the devil, that we would not forsake you and abandon you during times of difficulty, but rather, Lord, during those times, we would cast all of our cares upon you. Lord, that they would be times where we depend upon you even more and that our faith is stretched and tried in many ways and and becomes even stronger, Lord, and greater during those times of difficulties. And Father, we pray that we would build each other up in our faith. Lord, seeing that we are all members of one body. Lord, may we have not only our own interests, but the interests of all of our brothers and sisters in Christ on our mind. And Lord, that you would use us to encourage one another every day, so long as it is called today. Lord, that we would be as Barnabas, who with a resolute heart, was exhorting and encouraging the people to remain true to the Lord. Lord, may we be like Joshua and Caleb. Lord, who did not discourage the people from being obedient to you, but who were trying to build them up in the faith so that they would overcome, Lord, the temptation and that they would do what it is that you wanted them to do. So, Father, may we be exercising this ministry toward one another, Lord, seeing that we are all members of one body and that we are all united together and that when one of us suffers, we all suffer and when one of us rejoices, we all will rejoice. So, Lord, build us up in our faith and build us up together in this church. Lord, into our living head and, Lord, give to us all that you require. And it is in Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen.